You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Kinesic. Welcome to a hundred, or episode 116. And uh, and before we get into today's guest, we had a lot of questions in our Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group about uh, the monarch butterfly adding being added to the IUCN endangered list, and what does that mean? And, um, well, Fran, what, what do you think about all that? It... it Regulation-wise, it doesn't really affect us here in the country because it's not the U.S. Fish and Wildlife endangered list. Um, I I like the fact that it brings more attention to this topic. Not that it it hasn't gotten attention, but it brings more attention, and it's an opening point for our listeners to have conversations with mm-hmm. other people. And that's what I like. There's no regulation-wise, it doesn't affect us at yeah, all. It, so there was a lot of confusion I saw online where pe- some people thought it was added to the endangered species list through, I guess, Fish and Wildlife Service or the national one, um, where there are federal protections that come into play, yeah. which that's not the case. And in my opinion, we want to keep the monarch butterfly off of that list um, because, at least from what I've heard, it can impact – people aren't going to want milkweed anymore, at least the, most people, because once you bring in the monarchs – you there can't is, get rid of it. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of things that you can't do. Um, so our goal is to keep that off that list. But the IUCN red list is basically means the species is likely to go extinct without intervention. So this is just really the biggest thing that this can do is raise awareness and say, hey, we got to get our act together and, and help save the species before it gets added to our national endangered species list. Yeah. Because um, then there's actual things there's where complications. you can't do yeah. <laughs> you yeah. can't do certain things yeah. anymore. So, um, but that was the big thing we wanted to touch on and say it's not it's not uh, I don't want to say it's not the end of the world, but it's it's a, a red flag saying hey we got to start doing something. But there's no legal implications yet. No, and and the the nice thing about it is it's popping up on all the social media. Mm-hmm. Like you you see it everywhere, which is great. People are talking about it. They're thinking about it. And if if you want to have a conversation with with a neighbor or or something like that, it's it's a good introduction to the problem. Um, not that there's any regular regulatory mm-hmm. means behind it, but it it does at least spark conversation, which we're all for. Yeah. So awesome. So- but yeah, so going into today's episode and today's guest, we have a really cool one lined up. And I mentioned uh, on a couple episodes ago that I went to the Philadelphia Flower Show. And uh, and my only gripe with the Philadelphia Flower Show is I've, I'm a native plant guy, so I like to see native plants. And there was actually quite a few of them there, but I wish it was all native plants. But uh, <laughs> through that, we got linked up um, with some folks from the or Pennsylvania Horticultural Society, and we have one of them on today. So we have Andrew Bunting, who is the vice president of horticulture, and he's going to talk to us about all kinds of stuff that, that PHS does. So, Andrew, why don't you start off and kind of give a little bit of your background and, and what brought you to the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society? Sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, so I've been at the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society about two, two and a half years, Uh, Prior to that, I was at the Atlanta Botanical Garden in Atlanta. And then prior to that, 
uh, for about three and a half years, I was at the Chicago Botanic Garden, which is actually uh, north of Chicago. And then prior to that, I was out in, in uh, on the East Coast in this general area. Uh, for 27 years, I was at uh, uh, the Scott Arboretum at Swarthmore mm-hmm. College. And then before that, I you know did some internships and worked overseas in England and in New Zealand. But I would say m- most of my career has definitely been in the the public realm in public gardens, botanic gardens, and arboreta. With, I mean, those are some pretty high profile places mm-hmm. that that you've worked. How is and being in the public eye, and and having that kind of background, how is public perception for those areas changed over the years? Yeah, that's a great question. I, it, what I liked about working in these very public entities is that they have to be uh, nimble to, to some degree. So, you know, I think a really good example and something that, you know, is, is uh, timely for this show is, so when I was at the Chicago Botanic Garden, we were always very conscious about how uh, plants were starting to seed around the garden. So we had we actually had an invasive plant committee that would I think we met four times a year, and we had both horticulturists on on the staff as well as people from the conservation team, and we were constantly vetting just through kind of observations, but also through uh, some scientific data, plants that um, either showed a propensity for invasiveness or were showing up on regional invasive lists. So a really good example is, uh, uh, you know, and a, and a lot of invasiveness is, is can, can be very regional. So something that might be invasive in Chicago might not necessarily be invasive in Philadelphia and vice versa. But uh, a plant that's invasive in both areas is uh, miscanthus. Mm-hmm. So uh, they did a, 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 what's called a fecundity study, which st- studies the uh, number of seeds sent by each, each species and cultivar of miscanthus. And then uh, the fecundity part is how... Uh, how much of the seed is viable and actually germinates. So they had some really good science on uh, the worst cultivars to uh, the ones that perhaps were not as much of an issue. But what we decided to do is we felt like it was hard. It would be hard for the homeowner or, you know, the regular visitor Mm -hmm. to, to make a distinction between different uh, cultivars of miscanthus. So we've, we decided to, to remove them all mm-hmm. from the garden. And, you know, this was no easy task because there was areas where there was a, uh, a garden that was done maybe 20 years ago that, um, uh, that Oma Van Sweden did, and it had huge swaths of miscanthus. So over a period of years, we removed all the, all the miscanthus. We did the same thing with Bradford pears. So, mm-hmm. you know, now Bradford pear you know, it, it's illegal to, uh, to sell it. Um, but you know, this is like seven years ago. Uh, but there was a lot of Bradford pears. There was probably a hundred mature Bradford pears. So we system, uh, systematically, uh, remove them from the collections. And we, we did that with other things as well. Uh, uh, 
uh, uh, Acer Bugerianum, we did that with. Uh, we, uh, the Bradford pear, bar, all the barberries were mm-hmm. removed. So, you know, I think that those public gardens that are fairly progressive and want want, want to be educational, because at the end of the day, they're, you know, that many of them are there for beauty. Many of them are there for educational purposes. Some are there for science and conservation or all of the above. So we wanted to be, you know, we felt like if we had the plant that we were endorsing it. So mm-hmm. that was the reason why we got rid of, we got rid of a lot of other things, but some of them were easy. It was just like three plants. Olnus glutinosa oh, was yeah. an, another one. And there was a lot of that and mature ones. So that I suspect they're still removing those because it, you know, it was the cost of the removal and then the cost of the replacement mm-hmm. as well. You know, that actually sparked a really good memory for me that I forgot about. So some of the best invasive information we'd gotten – I had worked at the Conard Pyle Company or Star Roses yeah. for five or six years. And some of the best information we were getting was from other botanical gardens. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you may know Angela Palmer or Angie yeah, Treadwell. Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, So – and she would come back and say, hey, we really shouldn't be selling purple loosestrife anymore. You know, there's some good studies coming out. Yeah. And Miscanthus was a big one. That was a big part of our production – and it, what was nice was at least we were coming back and saying we need to remove this from our production plan and be responsible. Yep. We'll meet our commitments. It may take two to three years to phase it out. But we were getting this great information. Angie was coming back with with great information that was changing us as a production nursery mm-hmm. and what we presented as a line trying to be responsible as well. Yeah, And that's not yeah. a, something a lot of people think about yeah, and or, or know is happening. Yeah. And the memory yeah, I think that – Oh, Andrew, I'll let you go. You're the. Oh yeah, I was just going to say a lot of botanic gardens, if they're observant, you know, they can see things kind of coming before maybe even even the industry does. Because mm-hmm. like, you know, we were also noticing problems with um, Penicetum alipecuroides, uh, Calamagrossus brachytrica, which is you know fairly mm-hmm. uh, common, you know, ornamental plant and some other, some other things as well. So, you know, we wouldn't always just throw the baby out with the bathwater, but you know, if it, it reached kind of a critical point or it was already showing up on lists, then that's when we would take action. And we were doing the same thing with uh, just a, kind of another example of, of gardens kind of uh, uh changing and making sure they're in a good public eye is, you know, we did the same thing with um, uh, herbicides, pesticides, Mm -hmm. fungicides. We were reducing them in total, uh, total weight by 10% a year. Uh, So, you know, there was things that we had sprayed in the past that we just decided not to to spray anymore. Mm -hmm. And our, our approach was like, Either it's going to fend for itself or if it gets to such a point where it looks bad, we'll take it out and replace it with something more appropriate. And a really good example was the the Rose Garden where we uh, started to uh, switch out the roses with more heat-tolerant roses, roses that really weren't as susceptible to powdery mildew and black spot and, and so forth. So it really kind of forced our hand, so to speak, uh, to, you know, install plants that were more uh, resilient, I guess. It's, it's 
funny. I don't know if I ever shared this with you, Tom, because like, a lot of the rose industry, for, for those that don't know, at least in the mid-90s when I worked for Star Roses, it was the third largest rose company in the country. And if you go back into the history of when they went to roses, it was <laughs> – the 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 rationale was let's do garden roses because people – love them they're attached to them and they're short-lived more than likely they'll die every year and they'll be willing <laughs> to come back and replace them every year so i mean that was actually knowing that they had these problems that was the whole business plan for selling it because it's like oh people love them they're attached and they'll buy them regardless and they're not yeah. that expensive so if they spend you know 15 20 a year they don't have an issue with that yeah but it's it's nice to you know, it's nice as that research comes out. It's nice to know that research is being done. Um, oh, yeah. Because so many of the, the plants that you named were the biggest sellers <laughs> at the time that they were found invasive. Miscanthus, I can't even name the amount that was being sold or, or um, Imperata, Cylindrica, Rubra, the Japanese bloodgrass, those yeah, types of things. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's it's we didn't know because they're selling great. It's yeah. it's that feedback from behind the scenes in a lot of these botanical gardens that we were getting that information from. Yeah. Tom, you were going to say something. Yeah, it was the, I, Andrew, you said something that sparked a memory in my mind too, and uh, it was all the way back in episode two when we had on Duke Farms and that phrase you used where if you had the plant there, you were endorsing it, and they had the same kind of thing as they've transitioned a lot of their their property there to be native plants and native habitats. Um, they found that getting rid of the invasive plants became ever more important because people would walk through with the mindset saying, oh, well, this is only plants that are native or, or uh, contribute to native habitats. And then if they saw an invasive plant like a Japanese barberry, they could tie that in if they didn't know uh, all the background of Japanese barberry. And say, oh, this is a plant, and they key it out and say, oh, well, this must be a good thing because they have it here. And, uh, yeah, but that was all the way back in episode two with Duke Farms, which we've got to revisit with them <laughs> at, right, <laughs> at some totally. point. But. So you mentioned your background, but what brought you to the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society? And then what is the, the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society? Sure, sure. So I've always known, not always, but for a long time I've known about the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. So when I worked at the Scott Arboretum at Swarthmore College, I would actually volunteer at uh, the flower show and do some other volunteer activities. So probably all the way back into, you know, probably 87 was first time I volunteered at the flower show. You know, I got to, I was getting to know the society fairly well and got to know it better and better over the years and liked uh, what it was doing. Cause it's a, it's a different type of uh, public uh, horticultural entity. So, you know, most, places I had worked in the past had like a big, you know, permanent uh, garden. Uh, the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society is um, met many programs that make up the institution. So the one that most people know is the Philadelphia Flower Show, which has been going since 1829. And the, the Hort Society itself was founded in 1827. So in five years, we'll celebrate our 200th anniversary Today, uh, PHS is very much a, a community-based organization. So we, um, some of the different programs of significance are our public gardens and landscapes programs. So we maintain uh, 
public gardens, accessible public gardens and landscapes around the city predominantly, although we have one garden, Meadowbrook Farm, which is north of the city in Montgomery County, Abington Township. But some of the others that you might recognize are places like the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the Rodan Museum, the Azalea Garden, Logan Circle, various parks and gardens at the Philadelphia Navy Yard, various parks and kind of horticultural areas along the Delaware River waterfront, uh, the front of the Eastern State Penitentiary, the green roof at, at Pico headquarters, the entire wow. uh, ca- the entire campus at Subaru of America in, in Camden, um, and, and so on. Uh, and also within that, uh, many of the, the street trees as well. Uh, and then another significant program is our street tree program. So we have uh, areas throughout the city where we're targeting because they have their low canopy uh, areas of the city where there's other green equity issues. Uh, so we're always, you know, in this, you know, over the course of the year, we'll, we'll plant, you know, a few thousand trees. Also part of that program is uh, a training program called Tree Tenders, where we, uh, Tree Tenders go through a, a training program and they learn how to plant a, a street tree, how to tend for it, how to be an advocate for street trees. So the idea is that once they're trained, they're all over the city. You know, there's a lot in New Jersey and Delaware and kind of the collar counties of of Philadelphia. So they kind of uh, help do the work with regards to street trees that, that PHS is doing as well. Another big program is our community gardens. So we partner with about 150 community gardens. We grow about 270,000 seedlings of vegetables and do four, di- four different distributions throughout the year. So like an early spring, later spring, early summer, later summer, so, you know, more of the fall fall crops. And so the seedlings are grown at uh, four different locations that we have throughout the city with different partners. Like we have a a facility at Aubrey Arboretum and another one near uh, Bartram's Garden and another in Strawberry Mansion where we're growing all these seedlings. Then they get taken to the community gardens and then distributed amongst uh, the community gardeners. And then a lot of them are also participating in a program we have where part of the the harvest from these gardens goes to uh, support different uh, uh, kitchens and food banks around the predominantly around the city. Another big program that a lot of people don't even know about is called land care. And what land care does is we, um, we take abandoned lots in the city and we essentially clean and green them. So we remove uh, the rubble and you know, dilapidated house, whatever's there, bring in topsoil, sow grass, put a purposeful fence around it, perhaps put in a few uh, shade trees. In a lot of the parts of the city where there are green equity issues, these uh, clean and green vacant lots essentially become uh, parks or community green spaces. So it's one thing to clean and green them, but for them to really be successful is they also have to be maintained. So every couple of weeks we have a 
uh, crews and local local companies that go in and uh, mow them, weed whip, clean up the trash, prune, fix the fence, whatever needs to be done. So in our current portfolio, we have 12,000 uh, vacant lots that we cleaned and greened and that we also make, that we also maintain. And a lot of them are contiguous. So, you know, if you have like say five together, it actually makes a fairly uh, big space. And then also kind of woven through all that is we have a workforce development program. So uh, we're, we're training uh, people uh, that are in need, need of skills and, and jobs uh, and often they get that get hired by these companies that have kind of uh, bubbled up because the whole land care, the whole cleaning and greening has created, you know, a whole industry in parts of the city because you figure to mow and take care of 12,000 uh, lots, you know, takes a, a fair amount of labor. So it's kind of created this nice kind of uh, circular system. Yeah. I knew some of those things. I didn't know <laughs> all of those things. I'm so overwhelmed. I just wrote like a million questions. So be prepared <laughs> to like, let's go off topic. Um, if I just wanted to throw a quick question because it's been, I've been here 15 years now. So I've been out of the street tree uh, portion of it for quite some time. I, when I was at Princeton nurseries, we did a lot of work with yeah. uh, Pennsylvania horticultural society. And I remember like every city kind of knew the average lifespan of a street tree for their city. And I think back in the early late nineties, early two thousands, I want to say it was like maybe seven years. Do you, do you happen to know that stat? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know that. I know that they are vulnerable for a number of reasons. You know, that's another reason we have this tree tenders program is they, they're meant to kind of engage the neighbors to keep that, you know, it's the first year, essentially year or two that is kind of when they're going to be successful or not. So, you know, advocating for neighbors to water them, you know, they, they all get staked and the stakes are really almost there more for protecting the tree, Mm -hmm. like a physical protection of car doors and uh, other things that can happen, especially in, in the city. Uh, we only plant bare root trees, so, okay. you know, they, again, are a bit more vulnerable. Uh, we do a spring planting and a, and a fall planting. Um, I would say that, you know, also, like, the street trees have been recommended have changed over time. Uh, we, we, you know, we have to pick species that are, you know, tough and urban resilient, Um uh, you know, some that come to mind that are natives, probably the be- couple of the best ones are the swamp white oak, mm-hmm. Quercus bicolor. And then another one that's really become popular in the last 10 years is the Kentucky coffee tree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you can get a male like um, uh, espresso, and the- now there's a new one coming out of the Morton Arboretum called Skinny Latte. Uh, it's a more, it's more uh, uh, a bright one. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, those are, you know, Kentucky cough tr- gymnocleus dioicus is really urban tough. And then we also use uh, a tree that's turned out to be fairly urban uh, tough is the yellowwood, Cladrasis yeah. kentuckia. And then for a smaller tree, we use uh, 
Carpinus caroliniana mm-hmm. quite a bit. Yeah. So those are some of the, and we still use ginkgo, which, yeah. you know, could well, be argued as na- native if you really, <laughs> if you well, if you really if you really turn back the clock. Well, let's let's be honest. Ginkgo biloba was the only tree to survive a nuclear uh, bomb. Like it was the only mm-hmm. thing, only tree that survived. So it's 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 tested urban hardy, and and we understand that challenge because it's not mm-hmm. like nature where where these trees are in a natural setting and have time to evolve. They're they're being put in a very unnatural setting and have to exist immediately. So that's yeah. a challenge that you can't. It's not a natural setting, so you can't always go native. You need something that can needs to adapt right away because the relationship that the public has with those trees, knowing that there aren't that many, has to be pretty deep. Uh, if you have yeah. one tree in front of your house, that tree is important to you. And I guess yeah. that leads. I guess this is a two part question. Um. With that much – with that many lots that you maintain because stewardship is is the key element in, in success, how important is our – I shouldn't – how important are volunteers to PHS and how do you view as the public eye as what you're doing for, for natural areas to, in the city um, or even just street trees? So your question is – how important are volunteers? volunteers for what you're doing? Is it mainly employees or is there a lot of volunteers? No, no, it's, it's, you know, PHS is a, a, an amazing and complex network of employees for sure, permanent, a lot of part-time employees, a lot of subcontractors we use for of all, all, all types of work. Uh, and then a lot of volunteers, especially with the flower show. So, uh, we well in the tree tenders. So there's thousands of trained tree tenders who are all technically volunteers. We use thousands of volunteers to to produce and put on the Philadelphia Flower Show, and then we use volunteers in an, in a, any of a number of other capacities. You know the community gardens. You know almost everybody associated with those are in, in a volunteer uh, capacity. And then we do have volunteer groups that uh, help out, you know, maybe some of the more gardened spaces as well. Definitely Meadowbrook Farm. But we've used volunteer groups at, say, the Navy Yard, uh, in the Rodan Museum, the Zalia Garden for sure. So, yeah, we see, you know, for us, uh, volunteers are not just icing on the cake. They're really integral to our operations. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And and the how's the public interaction with with I, I would assume it's very well received given yeah. uh you know how how much they ha- may have to travel to get to a natural area or how important that street tree is. Do you get a lot of public feedback as to Oh yeah. Their- yes. Yeah. You know, we're you know, what we're, we're trying to connect people with horticulture that's kind of core to what we're doing. So it could be any of a number of ways. It could be helping a homeowner get a street tree, connecting somebody to a community garden, creating these green spaces throughout the, the city that are, you know, free and accessible. You know, we, we also want to connect people from all walks of life to, to horticulture and kind of meet them where they are in their horticultural journey. And hopefully you know, inspire them through beauty or maybe sharing food or whatever the case might be 
to uh, to do m- more with horticulture. So uh, almost everything we do has to do uh, with engaging uh, the pu- the public. Okay, and uh, one more question, Tom. Okay, I swear friend. we can get back up. <laughs> um, what are your relationships with, given your reach and all the areas that you work on, what is your relationship with, say, Philadelphia Parks or, right, or PA sure. Audubon or all these other groups doing the same thing? Is yeah. it is it pretty – does everyone work together pretty well? Are you all on the same page uh, for those yeah, types of projects? So, you know, PHS also probably maintains literally hundreds of partnerships. So one of our most key partners in a, in a lot of ways is – Philadelphia Parks and Recreation. So, you know, several of those gardens I mentioned, the the land is owned by uh, PPR. So the Azalea Garden, Philadelphia Museum of Art, the Rodan, Logan, all those are, the land is Philadelphia Parks and Recreation. We have a partnership or relationship with them where uh, we do, you know, most of the horticulture, they, they may assist with the, like, irrigation and trash pickup and things like that. But we uh, probably about 15 years ago, we created a, a fund kind of a, 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 an endowment type fund called uh, legacy landscapes okay. uh, fund. And that uh, partially s- supports the financial needs of gardens along the parkway. So Zalia garden, Philadelphia museum, or Rodan Logan, so that's where kind of the, the funding comes from. Uh, we also, um, uh, we did a, a, a program with the National Wildlife uh, Foundation where we got a grant from them to do uh, 50 uh, pilot pollinator gardens on these vacant lands. Oh, wow. So that was, those were installed a couple of years ago. Um, you know, the Navy Yard is a partnership with PIDC. Uh, the stuff along the Delaware River is a partnership with the Delaware River Waterfront Corporation. Uh, the stuff at the, the penitentiary is in partnership with uh, uh, the Eastern State Penitentiary, which is a standalone nonprofit. And it, it you know, goes on and on and on where, you know, I would say, you know, PHS probably has over 300 active partnerships. Wow. That's awesome. Now, I know Tom had a lot of questions about the <laughs> Philadelphia Flower Show. I don't know if I cut you off with other things, too. No, I, no, you go ahead. I'm go a long-time uh, visitor to the Philadelphia Flower Show. I, I didn't have the opportunity to visit the last two, but you did. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know you had you had questions on that. Yeah, well, Fran, you really asked one of my big questions, and that was, how do you guys do it? All? Yeah, it's because that's and, uh, a, a lot more than I realized. Yeah, oh, it's way more than I ever realized. And um, and I guess you, one of the things before we get in the flower show was you mentioned some of the native street trees that you use. Uh, but what are some other ways that PHS works with with native plants? Sure. So a lot of it's through public gardens and landscapes. So I would say we're not exclusively natives. Mm-hmm. But we have, um, you know, at the, at the flower show, we did uh, an exhibit called Gardening for the Greater Good. And what kind of underpinned uh, that exhibit is we have uh, what we call the principles of gardening for the greater good. So uh, one, one of the, there's, there's 
four kind of main principles. So they're things, celebrate gardening, choose your plants with intention. Your garden is part of the ecosystem and embrace a sharing mindset. So if you go to the one that's uh, your garden is part of the ecosystem, uh, under there, there's, you know, maybe five bullet points, which are things like, uh, expand your garden space, increase its environmental benefit by reducing your lawn, as well as pavement and other impervious surfaces. Use all organic fertilizers, soil amendments, and other treatments. A compost. Uh, make your garden a habitat by incorporating wildlife-friendly elements like water features and safe places for wildlife to feed and rest and re- reproduce. Mitigate stormwater runoff. Uh, Use natives where you can. Um, you know, look for manual or electric alternatives for gas-powered engines and so forth. So, um, again, while while we're not uh, only advocating for native plants, a lot of the native plants uh, fulfill our needs for our gardens and support uh, these principles. So. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, we want plants that have uh, ecological functions. They need to be urban, resistant, tolerant, resilient. And resiliency could be any of a number of things from drought resilient to flooding. We get some flooding along the Delaware River, Uh, deer resistant. So uh, there's actually quite a few deer at the Philadelphia Navy Yard. Wow. Um, you know, and we're, we're uh, you know, we're trying to, you know, in a, in a thoughtful way, tell people why natives are important. You know, just saying natives are important, I think people get, are starting to get that that, that is, mm. a, you know, that is important. Uh, but, you know, we're trying to talk about you know, regional, regionally native plants versus, say, a plant that's native to, to Georgia and what, what, what the distinctions are. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think a lot of the plants we, we do use in our landscapes are uh, uh, regionally uh, native. Mm-hmm. And then we're also trying to showcase, you know, good garden design and beauty as well. And, you know, as you guys know, there's, there's hundreds of great native plants that, that can do all of that. I mean, I think, I don't know if you guys have uh, been to Stonely, which is a new pub, public garden near Chanticleer, yeah. exclusively natives. And what's great about that garden is, you know, I think, you know, when people think of a native garden, it's kind of a, a naturalistic mm, yeah. look. Um but Stonely is is part that, but it's also kind of what I would consider kind of high level design using natives. So it mm-hmm. should it now shows people that uh, there's different kind of aesthetic styles that can be created by using na- native plants. So we're trying to do that throughout our landscapes. I'd say the ones that are uh, mostly natives are like the plantings at the Navy Yard. A lot of the plantings along the Delaware River, uh, you know, the more oh, Subaru. If you've yeah. never been to the camp, the Subaru campus in in Camden, mm-hmm. it's 
it's there's hardly any lawn on the entire place, and I think we use seventy seven thousand plugs. Wow! But not all natives, but yeah. mostly a lot of natives, um, mostly herbaceous plants, some shrubs, uh, and it's really you know a pretty interesting departure for what what a corporate campus could mm-hmm. do. Which is awesome because it doesn't have to be all natives. Yeah, no, no one's ever said, "Hey, all natives are nothing." But you, the the principles that you set forth are are actually really progressive. I I think for I mean that's like a dream. Like if everyone had those principles, that would be phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there wouldn't be any issues. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, even if one uh, percent of all the corporate campuses in the United States took that approach, it would actually be a fairly mm-hmm. significant shift because most of those corporate campuses have huge amounts of lawn yeah. that they're, they're probably treating with some sort of insecticide and herbicide. The mowing, you know, is mm-hmm. significant. Um, like, and, and for some that, that don't know, like I remember Merck when they did their Princeton campus in the, uh, mid to late 90s they actually harvested all the trees from the pro- property instead of clearing it created a nursery and then planted them all back wow. afterwards to try to create that that natural setting mm-hmm. with using what was there and not destroying anything they tried to really reduce their footprint yeah. which is wonderful to see and i know it was very expensive for them for them to do it was an expensive alternative but they were committed to it mm-hmm. so it's nice and to see like subaru and and companies like that you're do starting that. to see more and more of that i know uh with through the southeastern grasslands initiative uh i think they've worked with google to do that and uh i think google has a headquarters in, around nashville i think and then uh i want to say pepsico was another corporate headquarters or a mm. campus that they worked on in that area yeah. um and it was just kind of showed how those partnerships you the folks at google don't know what native plants are but right. you have they partner they with look an up. organization like southeastern <laughs> grasslands initiative or in this case subaru partners with the the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society, and um, and they're able to have something that serves a greater purpose on their, their campus. And it's helpful when you have someone like PHS putting forth the message in native plants, especially at the Philadelphia Flower Show, which is internationally renowned. So yeah. it's that's a big message, and I'm sure that had to have been a big eye-opener for a lot of the people coming there. Yeah, it was to me um, just – because when I think, like I mentioned in the beginning, I'm an, I'm a native plant guy. So I go to the flower show because it's a nice day out. It's like I can bring my wife, I can bring our son, and we can walk around a little bit. And especially now that it's outside, get some fresh air. And um, and it was so awesome to see that Garden for the Greater Good because as you're coming in, it's really the first uh, display that you, you'd come across. And uh, and so many people were just kind of curving off through there and – and uh, and if you if you didn't go to the flower show and you want to see that garden, I'm sure P, uh, PHS has probably pictures of it someplace. But we have a little video on our uh, our Pinelands Nursery Instagram account too that we took of it, just saying, "Hey, look what you can find at the Philadelphia Flower Show." Um, but I guess going to the flower show for folks that are not from our area or haven't been for for of whatever reason. What can they expect to find when going to the flower show, and why should they go to the Philadelphia Flower Show? Right. So the Philadelphia Flower Show, as you said, is it's actually the biggest. Typically, it's indoors. Uh, you know, it was outdoors last few years because of COVID. How was that received? Uh, Did were a lot of people was, happy yeah, about that? Yeah, it was very well received. There was challenges with weather and heat and and so forth. 
Uh, I think people enjoyed having it outdoors. And when I mentioned Philadelphia Parks and Recreation, the site was FDR Park, which is a Philadelphia Parks and Recreation site. So yet yet another example of our partnership with them. Um, so a typical show, whether it's indoors or outdoors, what people can expect to see is usually entrance gardens, the PHS installs. And so we actually did two this year. One was called the Gardening for the Greater Good, which really did highlight our principles of gardening for the greater good, as well as native plants. So I would say 99% of the plants mm-hmm. in there were, were native and we used uh, natural mulches, whether it was mm-hmm. uh, pine needles or kind of partially decomposed uh, le- leaves. And then we had some educational information. The plants were labeled as well. And then once you get into kind of the heart of the show, we usually have about a dozen main exhibits that are, that are designed by, uh, either notable uh, uh, garden design companies, maybe paired with a landscaper, or maybe they have that capacity themselves, uh, some up-and-coming uh, designers, and then some internationally renowned designers. So uh, just thinking of native plants, uh, Refugia, mm-hmm. uh, who I'm sure great, you guys are familiar with, um, they, they always do go- uh, gorgeous design that is uh, really shows how you can creatively use uh, native plants. Uh, I'd say most of the gardens, even though that might not have been their focus, had native plants like mm-hmm. Mark Cook, who won Best of Show. He had quite a few native shrubs. He had a, a hydrangea arborescence, Annabelle, and hydrangea quercifolia snow queen, both of which are we have a program called the Gold Medal Program, which okay. promotes great garden plants for the Mid-Atlantic region. It's been going on 40 years, so it's a really nicely kind of if uh, curated list. And if you go to phsonline.org, you can see there's a searchable database of all the gold medal plants. So he actually won a, another award for showcasing uh, gold medal plants. Uh, there's another design company company that's local in Germantown, uh, Apiary Studio. Oh, yeah. And, Hans and, Hesslein. Okay. Yes, Hans Hesslein and um, uh, Martha. And they they didn't have all natives, but they had some natives in there. They were showing kind of resilient yep. uh, water-wise plantings. You know, that's another thing we're trying to promote more and more of is those plants that can take, you know, more uh, drought conditions. Then as you get to the back of the show, typically there would be more of the competitive classes like competitive floral, uh, small, smaller landscape gardens, maybe a class that might be like a patio or a deck or an entranceway. And then one of the favorites is what's called the horticort, and that's almost like the county fair where <laughs> all the different uh, cla- classes of specific plants are judged. So, like, you know, agaves and cactus and orchids and uh, you, almost you, you, name, mm-hmm. you name it, African violets. You know, there'll be a class that might be African violets, six-inch pot or under, but within the horticort, there's three to four hundred classes, yeah. so it's you know very competitive. It pulls in all the local plant societies, like the Jesnerian, the Liberty Bell Jesnerian Society, the Delaware Valley uh, 
Cactus and Succulent Society, all the different orchid societies come come to the flower show to compete. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's a lot. and you have speakers as well, correct? Yeah. So yeah. this when for the outdoor show we didn't, but we okay. did, there's also edu- often educational uh, components as well. Speakers. Uh, there, you know, we've um, one of our longtime sponsors is Bartlett Tree Care Company, and they do a thing called Bartlett Days, which is more kind of arboriculture focused. That's always at the at the flower show. But yeah, there's there's demonstrations. There's often lectures. There may uh, the last indoor one we had this great uh, conference on uh, biodiversity. Uh, so that, you know, that had a lot of obviously connections to native plants. And when you were at the beginning mentioning the, uh, the monarch being, you know, IUCN red, red listing, you know, that, that, that spreads into all living organisms. And I, um, this is a little side tangent, but, uh, I, I work with the Magnolia Society International and, um, uh, a plant that is on the red list actually is a, a, a an East Coast native. It's Magnolia macrophylla ashii, and it's only found in five counties in the northern panhandle of, of Florida. Wow. And the the IUCN red list, there's actually different there's different levels. So there's you know maybe the lowest is is threatened, and the worst is is extinct. Mm-hmm. Uh, endangered is, you know, way up at the, at at the top. So, uh, like, like Tom said, uh, what it does is it brings attention to it, you know, because the IUCN Red List is an international uh, conservation organization. And there's a, there's a very scientific process that has to happen for a species, whether it's a bird, a butterfly, a mammal, a plant to get red listed and it, it, it moves like, unfortunately a lot of them get, get, you know, become more endangered. So they're, that you know, they're moving closer mm-hmm. and closer yeah. and closer to extinction, but there's, you know, the bald Eagle is a great example of something that was considered very endangered. And now I think, I think it's been taken off the, endangered list so it can't there can't there can be shifts yeah i'm towards I, the positive i've seen more bald eagles this year than i think i ever had in in, in multiple areas um oh yeah but, yeah i see them you know flying over 95 down at john hines <laughs> uh i have a i do some birding i have a friend that went to the missouri river in nebraska which was l- low and he said along the shores he saw probably 700 wow 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 that's yeah. But that's – you know, that with the IUC too, it's important, especially for the monarch because that spreads beyond our borders also. Yes. I mean that's – it's good that it's being internationally recognized because yes. it does – it's not just affecting one country. It's, yeah, I know. actually saw – ironically, I saw my first monarch in my home garden uh, yesterday. Wow. <laughs> it's For me, it's been the last week I, I've, I've okay. seen him in my home garden like I've just one or two. Mm-hmm. But I had been complaining because yeah. I have all this milkweed and I'm like I haven't seen a monarch <laughs> – at all, and then within the last week, I've I've started seeing them. So, which was which was really nice to see. Can can you? I know it's early. Can you talk at all about 
the future of the the flower show if it's going to remain outside for a little no, bit it's, longer it's, it's it's going indoors okay uh, the theme has not been announced yet but yeah it will be uh uh early march okay. next year if you go to our website it has uh um the exact dates so okay. yeah we'll def- we'll go back in- indoors um and uh you know e- even indoors there'll be I'm sure plenty of exhibits with uh, native plants, mm-hmm. you know, temple ambler often does a really good mm-hmm. uh, garden. That's kind of native uh, heavy and talks about uh, resiliency. Yeah. They, they, we've had them on the, the podcast actually. Mm-hmm. So we had a, a great conversation yeah. with them. And I was going to say some of the things that stuck out to me with the, the flower show this year was um, well, one, we had my, two-year-old son so we went to the children's area and yeah. another guest on the podcast uh beth yount from uh friends of high school park she was on that episode but she was volunteering there in that that children's area where they kind of taught people how to make these like pollinate or taught kids how to to grow plants <laughs> had them mix in the soil and and pouring the water in and then the bugs came at the end so um that <laughs> that's was an important cool. connection and one of the things that was really cool just because i like to cook is uh I don't want to call them tablescapes, but they're kind of like kitchen garden tablescapes um, where they had basically it was like little food gardens with a table set up in the middle and that was all all decorated. But uh, you'd have the cherry tomatoes and blueberries and that kind of stuff and just kind of. Sh- yeah, a lot of those smaller like the tablescapes or the the patios, you know, they're, they're just a small garden. Maybe they're mm-hmm. like, say. 10 by 10, 12 by 12, something like that. And those competitors are often garden clubs. Mm -hmm. That's where we kind of pull them in and get them fairly active in the flower. So you don't have to be a garden club. You can be, uh, you know, almost anybody to, you know, a group of people to, to compete at that level. And that those categories change every year. Mm -hmm. So if you did, you know, entryways one year, the category might be window boxes the, the next year. Yeah. Awesome. One, so, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And I was going to say the only other thing that I noticed that I wanted to ask you since, uh, since we have you here is it seemed like there was a lot of people who used mushrooms in their displays this year. And was that part of, um, I guess the category or is it just some people chose to, to do yeah, that? I think it's just a coincidence yeah. to be honest. Like there. Refugia had mushrooms, mm-hmm. and then the one uh, Martha Schwartz next to it had, had uh, uh, mushrooms as well. I think that was just coincidental. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it was just it was a good coincidence. Yeah. You know, I I was thinking we were talking about you talked about the tablescapes, Tom, with the uh, small spaces, and one of the 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 biggest question we get asked from most of our listeners is what they can do if they're in an urban setting or if they have just such a small space, you know, they were saying like, I just have a a balcony or I I have this. Do you have any tips for urban gardeners um, with, with some of the things they could do in small spaces, uh, how they could maybe incorporate plants or good urban native plants um, that they could use? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people who live in the city might only have like a front stoop, or backyard, maybe they don't have any land whatsoever. They may just have enough space for a, a container. And what I would recommend is, uh, you know, there are some native perennials that are, so, you know, so cold tolerant that even though they're in a raised container and probably the whole container freezes solid, um, 
you know, that they, they can survive. You know, there's uh, asters and some of the sedges that are cold hardy all the way up through, say, Chicago and Minnesota. Like, I would pick plants that in their native range, um, you know, have a fairly broad broad range and probably can take, you know, have genetically embedded in them reasonable hardiness. Uh, so those are the things I would probably gravitate towards. Uh, you know, Hucura velosa can make a, a nice container plant. I would probably think also about things that, you know, maybe have some nice foliage as well because, you know, when they're not in flower and if you only have a whiskey barrel, you you know, you want to look at nice foliage. Yeah. So maybe something like, uh, you know, Vernonia iron, iron butterfly always has nice kind of lacy foliage. You know, any of the grasses, you know, prairie drop seed might be a nice uh, container plant because it has nice flowers, foliage. When the flower, when it's flowering, has nice fragrance, is, is hardy, can take it wet yeah. or, or dry. Um, so those are the type of plants I think I would uh, kind of lean towards. Those are great suggestions. So I guess we – I would love to – and we went into your background, and I don't want to like have this conversation and not talk about you you know, yeah. as well. I mean you've I, – I guess – all right, two-part question. Kind of how did you choose this path for yourself? Sure. And you've been privy to some of the most beautiful gardens in the world – you know, where do you go to for personal inspiration? Right. Okay. Great. Uh, so yeah, I, uh, both my grandfathers were farmers, one in Nebraska and one in Illinois. So that's probably kind of the beginnings. And then my mother always had a, a flower garden of some sort. She still does. She lives in a Haddon Heights, New Jersey. And I'm right around the corner from there. Yeah. has a pretty nice, little garden on uh, Maple Avenue. Okay. Uh, so that's probably where I was inspired. I also had a, a I think a third grade teacher who he, when he was off on his summers, he was a park ranger at Yellowstone. Oh wow. And he would, and he would come back and tell us about that. And I think he, you know, I, I'm sure he was influential probably in more ways than I uh, can even think. You know, today, like, you know, part of my life is my professional life. But then, you know, there's really no distinct, much, much of a distinction between what I do professionally and what I do for fun. Like, you know, this morning I was watering from, you know, 6.30 to 7.30 and, you know, doing that last night. You know, I think I had sprinklers going at least till one at one in the morning. Uh and then when I go on vacation, I do I do the same thing. Like, <laughs> you know, I go, uh, you know, I'll go to England for, you know, two weeks and look at gardens. Or I was in uh, with some friends, colleagues uh, in South Africa last uh, October, November, and for three weeks. I mean, we did go to natural areas, but a lot of it was going to kind of horticultural destinations as well. So my inspiration is through I've done a lot of domestic and international traveling I do appreciate that you know I live in a area that has uh, 30 well, at least almost 40 public gardens within a 50 mile mm -hmm. 
radius of Philadelphia. And in fact, there's a, a group called the Greater Philadelphia Gardens, uh, and their moniker is America's Garden Capital, which is mm-hmm. 100% true. Uh, and there's, you know, there's so many great public gardens nearby. You know, there's, uh, you know, the ones we have in, in, as part of the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. There's Stonely, which is all natives, and Villanova, Chanticleer and Wayne, Scott Arboretum and Swarthmore, PA, um, you know, quite a few in, in New Jersey, Delaware, you know, Mount Cuba is yeah. probably one of the greatest native plant gardens in the, in the world. And it's only, you know, from Philadelphia, probably, you know, 45 minutes. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're, if you like gardening, there's plenty to see. If you like, uh, natives, there's uh, probably more, to, more to see, you know, Bowman's Hill, um, Stonely, Mount Cuba. Those three places are exclusively natives and then all the others have lots of natives Mm -hmm. as well um so you know i get i get my inspiration through uh going to private gardens public gardens i love going to nurseries as well uh i have a home garden in swarthmore so when i'm not doing my professional gardening i'm uh I, I do that. I also do, do quite a bit of uh, uh, writing. So I have to kind of, I feel like I have to uh, get out there and see, see what's going on. I do a, uh, uh, an article for our local newspaper called the Swarthmorean, and that's every other week. So, and then um, I do one for uh, uh, the Gardener News. You guys know that? I know that one, yeah. You know that's in that's a New Jersey publication. Mm-hmm. So that's every month, and then I do one for Green Profit through Ball Publishing. That's quarterly. So there, you know, I've got, and I can't repeat them all. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but I need I need lots of content. So that that uh, to some degree forces me to kind of get out there and see what see what's going on. Yeah. Even your hobbies are are work involved. I think, and that's why <laughs> you probably and listeners probably heard Fran and I like chuckle a little bit because that's I think what we do when yeah. we're on vacation is like, oh yeah, let's go check out the plants. I know yeah. uh, you, you need speak, speakers all the time yeah. for your program, so yeah, you got to yeah. get out there. Well, I I was just making the pitch for our next vacation to Glacier National Park. I'm like, but we have an in with the park rangers. Yeah. We have to <laughs> <Yeah>. go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um. You know, as we start to wrap up, they and and we mentioned the principles of PHS and just how progressive they've been, and and things change uh, all the time. What's the future of the Penn Hort Society, Pennsylvania Horticulture Society, moving forward? Yeah, I think the future is more like everything we do is uh, can be replicated and can be scaled up. So you might say, "Wow, twelve thousand lots." That's that's incredible, but there's thirty there's thirty seven thousand total vacant lots just in Philadelphia. There's and there's lots of other communities that we would like to to reach out into. We'd like to become more. We'd be, like to become more regional. We're fairly regional, but even more regional, more national. We really want to be a thought leader uh, with regards to our principles and also a place where people of you know, of all, all 
walks and wherever they are in their horticultural journey can come and find information. So even more of a a center for information. Uh, We want to be impactful. You know, we really feel that horticulture, uh, you know, is probably one one of the greatest vehicles uh, for uh, connecting people together to create, you know, beautiful and healthy neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it really is a, 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 one of the greatest agents of, of change or can, can be because uh, it, it really kind of levels the playing field. Like, like you know, horticulture c- cuts across, you know, all socioeconomic backgrounds, you know, all ethnic groups. There's probably not... Uh, any of those groups in the world that don't enjoy horticulture. So it actually can be a great um, magnet to bring people together and then connect them together mm-hmm. as well. We have a great new project up in uh, Norristown called the Norristown Farm Park. And so that's a two acre garden. And at that garden we're using it as a hub for uh, it's a community garden it supports local uh, food bank. It's a great place to bring volunteers together. We can do educational events. And that's a model that, you know, we could have one of those and, you know, in every municipality, you know, in the greater Philadelphia area. But it's it's a great model that can also be used in any city in the world. So in like Landcare, the, the vacant lot program has been replicated in about or, or st- at least studied in about 12 other cities, including uh, Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, and there's actually, if you go, if you go online, there's a really great YouTube video. If you just kind of Google uh, PHS vacant lots, Keith green, there's a, there's a TEDx talk that he did mm-hmm. that re- really wow. encapsulates uh at least our vacant lot work. I mean, so, I mean, that's very to me. That's very impactful because I can't even imagine the change in mental psyche from having someone living next to a vacant lot that's been vacant forever to now having their own little garden. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, well, or we've primary. done. Yeah, you know, that's another thing is we've done. Uh, we work with uh, uh, a researcher, uh, Doctor South, and she has studied uh, the impact of these vacant lots and green spaces on uh, mental health. Yep. And if you're in a close proximity to one of these green spaces, uh, mental health uh, issues go down by over 60%. Wow. Mm-hmm. And violent crime drops by over 25%. So, you know, yep. there's obviously other factors. It's not as though you know, plant a green lot and it changes, you know, yeah. all, all mm-hmm. the problems of an area, but it, it does contribute to a lot, a lot of positive things. It also, you know, increases uh, home values and, you know, it just, you know, at a, at a minimum is a safe place generally for people it creates beauty, you know, and beauty does translate into people feeling better about their communities and then translates into, you know, just a more uh, positive uh, mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the things we want to do. We want to do more things that really start to transform 
you know, in a monumental way, uh, cities, towns, municipalities, uh, you know, where I, I live in Swarthmore and we have a little, uh, society called the Swarthmore Horticultural Society. And we maintain, it's a, a standalone nonprofit and we maintain 13 gardens, uh, in, in, in horticultural mm-hmm. spaces in Swarthmore. And, you know, we know that that is, even for a, a little borough, it's fairly transformative. So we want to continue to use horticulture uh, in small transformative ways, but we also feel like it can it can change a city. I saw it in, I see it when I go to Chicago, I'm going to Chicago tonight, and, and Chicago has used horticulture to uh, transform that city over the last 20 years, make it probably one of the most, uh, you know, visited cities probably in the world. And a lot of that's due to, you know, Millennium Park, the green roofs that they've been fairly progressive with, the city, city median plantings, containers, park plantings, and on and on and on. And that's a mm-hmm. that's a difficult area when you think of lake effect and things. I remember working with their street tree people, and they were saying that their the average life is of a street tree for them was three years <laughs> because they, of, you know they did one of those million tree campaigns and you know com- like completed it. I think uh, you know in less time than they ant- anticipated, mm-hmm. and that's because at the time Mayor Daly, you know, they actually called. They called his dad the mechanical mayor, and they called his, that mayor daily the botanical mayor because he he saw early on that you know horticulture compared to infrastructure was relatively inexpensive, mm-hmm. and he could do these major horticultural installations, and it did it, you know it 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 completely changed uh, the look. Of this, the look and the feel of the city. Mm-hmm. I remember when they came to Princeton Nurseries. I remember asking them, like, there's so many nurseries around the Chicago area. Why are you coming here for plant material? And they were saying that it was very important to Mayor Daly that it shouldn't just benefit Chicago. It should benefit everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they, they wanted to help other nurseries and work with other nurseries around the country uh, to make it more of a national thing than a city thing, yeah. which I, I really applaud. Mm-hmm. Um you mentioned cities looking into the, the vacant lot program. Is there a network of of organizations like Penhort throughout the country that you get to associate with and throw ideas off and see other uh, I you know, how things are working for them or what they're doing? Yeah, there there's there's other kind of there's actually no to my knowledge, no kind of horticultural organization quite like PHS. Yeah. There are kind of older Port societies, but they they tend to be fairly uh, niche, or they've maybe decreased over over the years. Um, you know, in Chicago, as an example, as part of Chicago Botanic Garden, they have a program called Windy City Harvest, which is you know does similar work that say our community garden yeah. team does. So usually, it's not one big organization that does everything like PHS does. It's it's maybe an organization that's really good with street trees or really good with community gardens or maybe really good with uh, public spaces like, you know, a really good model for us 
for public gardens and landscapes are the gardens of the Smithsonian, which are, you know, many of the Smithsonian museums in Washington, D.C. have exceptional gardens, so much so that today there's actually a standalone uh, nonprofit, still part of the Smithsonian, but it's specific uh, to the gardens. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we would, you know, we we kind of would go to those type of organizations. Very cool. So I, I would imagine that our listeners are excited as Tom and I are hearing all these things. So for our listeners in the Philadelphia area that are so excited that mm -hmm. they would like to get involved and help, how can they go about volunteering for yeah. PHS? So if you go to if you go to phsonline.org, you can find everything. So information about the society. If you want to join and become a member, we would love that. But if you want to become also or or only want to become a, a volunteer, you can go and sign up to be a volunteer on that site. And it'll take you to, we have this, this portal called uh, Volunteer Hub. And you'll write, you'll type in the type information about yourself and kind of what you might be interested in. It'll also give you a list of volunteer opportunities because it's, it's, uh, there's a lot. Uh, you might want to just be a volunteer one time a year at the flower show, or you might want to get more involved. Mm -hmm. And all those opportunities are listed through uh, uh, that portal. Yeah. Awesome. And, and that link, if uh, when you do go to the PHS website, it's literally right at the, the tippy tippy top. Yeah. It'll say donate, join, and then volunteer. And yeah. When people are listening to this, there's stuff. If you listen to this first thing in the morning while you're having your coffee, maybe you can sign up and <laughs> go to something later that afternoon. So there, you have plenty of volunteer opportunities just coming up in the next over the course of August. So awesome. there's plenty there. Before we do our final question, Tom, do you have any other? I'm because I'm I've been talking yeah. over you all episode. <laughs> you you've had a lot of good, good <laughs> questions as you usually do. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Um, so we always end with the same question, and it's a very simple question, but a lot of times it ends up being the hardest question uh, because we won't make you pick just one if if, <laughs> if you don't want to. But we always ask what your favorite uh, native plant is. Yeah, so that's obviously hard to narrow it down. But I would say if I could only pick one, it would have to be uh, the Threadleaf Blue Star, Amsonia oh. Hubrichtii, just because it – it, it's uh, it's a perennial. Uh, it does ultimately almost become shrub-like. I have some in my home garden that are they're probably ten years old, and they're now at least six feet by six feet. Has beautiful kind of thread thread leaf foliage, mm -hmm. so texturally it looks great throughout the the growing season. It has in May upright star-shaped sky blue flowers. And then, you know, for a perennial, it has exceptional fall color, turns uh, golden in, in the fall. I can attest that it's 100% deer resistant. Like my front yard gets, I've seen, it's a small front yard, but I've seen six to eight deer there. And some things that you think are deer resistant, they actually browse, but they don't touch that because it has a milky sap. Uh, and it's tough as nails. Once it's established, it has a fairly deep uh, taproot, uh, full sun. And there are different clones now. There's some short, shorter ones. Uh, uh, but, you know, the, the big one. And it, what's funny is, like, when you buy one, like if somebody bought one from you, they would get a plug. 
or a small pod, and it's going to be one or two kind of wispy stems. So first year, one or two wispy stems. Next year, three to five wispy stems. Year three, maybe some more wispy stems. But by year three or four, it'll go from that to this massive, really shrub-like perennial. Yeah. And, and I can attest to that because yeah. I'm in year four now, and it's, I was just going to ask you. <laughs> it's huge, but, but texturally, uh, it's one of those plants oh, that yeah. I can't oh. walk by and not run my hand yes. yeah. over. Oh, the- yeah, I I have them. I the, I have three big ones flanking my front entrance entrance to my house. I had to give them a trim the other day because I'm sure the the mailman wasn't too happy. Every you know, if it's rained and he goes through those, he probably gets sopping wet. So I had to kind of liberate the the sidewalk so he can actually get. I mean, he still can't. He still can't get to the front of my house without touching plants. Yeah. So That's awesome. Must, yeah, I guess he's gotten used to it because there's no way to really, like there. I also have a, a Parthenium integrifolia, the wild quinine, and mm-hmm. that was coming over another side, and a Pycnanthemum on the other side. <laughs> that's awesome. Maybe that's the highlight yeah. of his day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Number number two, I will just mention it would be uh, Picnanthemum uticum, mm-hmm. which that's is true. I think the best in the mountain mints, and it is uh, pollinator central. There are so many native bees, little native wasps, all sorts of other pollinators. Like in it, it's flowering right now, so it's totally a buzz, mm-hmm. literally with with pollinators. Those are great choices. Yeah. Two great yeah. choices. I, I agree with both of those. But like I would disagree with any choice. But um, <laughs> this is uh, at, at the end of the show. We always uh, end with final thoughts, and this is where we turn the floor over to you. Uh, you can promote something. You can summarize. You can talk about anything you want to talk about, and we, we throw it over to you. Okay. Well, I would say like you know, I think I've been fortunate in that you know I – started gardening as, as a kid. And my mother was, uh, uh, always encouraging of it. I think as a teenage kid, she probably thought, you know, the alternatives to gardening, you know, were probably a lot worse than, you know, tur- tur- and we literally turned our front yard into a, a vegetable garden. Cause that's where there was the most sun. And I would say, you know, I have a lot of friends who have come to gardening, you know, late later in life. But I would say, you know, everybody I know that has dabbled in gardening and then gotten into gardening has found it to be really a rewarding pastime or hobby. Uh, You know, I think we're lucky in that it's uh, also, you know, amazingly rewarding uh, profession. And I do really like the fact that it it is such an amazing – vehicle to bring to bring people together to create a uh, peaceful and, and livable communities and that we can use it as a way to create uh, uh, to, to share you know I think during covid uh, it was a great opportunity for people a lot of people got into gardening especially vegetable gardening and through that uh, kind of the sharing mentality really kind of uh, you know, even grew maybe more so than it, than it was. And then it can, it can be, you know, we also see it as a great way to create new jobs, to create economic opportunity. I think 
you know, you guys have seen the nursery industry, you know, really explode over the last 30 years or so, but there, I don't think, I don't even think we're at the top. Like, I think there's more opportunities for uh, more nurseries, more garden companies, more even businesses that haven't even been um, created yet that maybe, you know, really do work on bringing, bringing people together through horticulture or using, you know, we've also seen how uh, these plantings, whether in their Philadelphia or Chicago or wherever, uh, you know, really help transform cities in, in so many different ways. And I think that, I think that's even uh, at the tip of the iceberg. I think what we'll see are cities that have to do plantings like this to, uh, you know, to deal with global climate change and, you know, the heat islands and mitigation of all sorts of uh, environmental issues. There, it won't be that uh, gardens are nice to have, Anymore, I think gardens will be a, a necessity, uh, and creating green spaces, however that is, and however many that they need to be, will be uh, critical for you know cities moving forward. It, 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 I, I think it's been proven on so many levels, whether it's you know absorbing stormwater runoff or mitigating heat islands or uh, creating beauty, transforming me- me- mental health, mitigating uh, violence in cities that, you know, that, that'll just become more, more uh, I think, more part of our needs and even kind of our vocabulary as, as city planners are looking towards the future. That's a great thought. I, I I think you mentioned the nursery industry. I think we're just on the verge of the next big mm-hmm. change. Like we see the next ten years yep. being a, a huge leap, and and it's there's a lot of paradigm shifts going on and a greater awareness. Um, and there's not enough of us. There's definitely a need. Yep. Uh, yeah. There there needs to be more. Mm-hmm. There, there there definitely needs to be more. Um, Tom, yeah. would you like to go? Or would you if like you would me? like me to go, I can go. I don't care. I'll let you go because okay. mine, mine's <laughs> off topic. All right. <laughs> so. Mine's short. So there's just a reminder that there's inspiration everywhere. Anywhere you look, there's inspiration. And a lot of a lot of listeners will say, you know, it has to be all native or nothing. And that's not the case. It's sometimes it's just change. Um and you gotta focus on the positives. And there's a lot of change on the way and, and with the changes that the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society has made, their principles and and the work that they're doing just brings a greater awareness. There's so many positive things beyond that. You just have to f- make sure you remember to focus on those – the great work being done, and this is an example of great work being done. Um, and you have to support that. You have to be behind it and you have to be a part of it. And uh, you know, there's there's inspiration everywhere no matter where you look. And just try to be positive. I'm not always the most positive person, <laughs> so that's – that's that's a lot for me to come out and say. Mm-hmm. Tom has to listen to me complain all the time. <laughs> that that is that is true. <laughs> so, and um, like I said, mine's gonna be off top. <laughs> all right, let's hear it. Uh, and well, Andrew, you mentioned that uh, that you'd work with the Subaru headquarters in um, in Camden, 
and just reminded me of sometimes when I've done uh, worked with plant sales, how many of the customers that come to pick up native plants are driving Subarus. And I've always just been fascinated with that link. It just seems like, oh, I guess, and I, well, I looked it up just thinking about it, and it's Subaru has their love promise, and then one of the components is that they love the earth and how they're doing some stuff where they, I, well, right on their website it says, uh, um, all Subaru products are manufactured in zero landfill production plants, and Subaru of Indiana Automotive is the only U.S. Autom- automobile production plant to be designated a backyard wildlife habitat by the National Wildlife Federation. They've really kind of bought into this idea, even though they're producing some of it, uses fossil fuels and and puts off tons of emissions, but kind of bought into this earth-friendly thing. And I always said if I wanted to to really put up a billboard, if I had to put up a billboard to promote native plants anywhere, I'm going to put it next to a Subaru dealership. (laughs) So my question – I didn't even think about that because your your parents have three three Subarus. Mm -hmm. Um, There's one Subaru (laughs) in my family. There's definitely two other – more than – there's three or four there's, other yeah, there's Subarus a handful in the parking, of lot. In the parking yeah. lot. And, uh, yeah, it's you, you have these plant sales, and it's just like it seems not more than every other car. It's like three <laughs> out of every four. <laughs> Super. Andrew, do you di- drive a Subaru or you drive something I else? don't. I have a Volkswagen, but right. I have been t- toying with a new car. I think the next one I'll get will definitely yeah. be ele- electric. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we uh, Subaru, actually, they we have some vehicles that are – I think they're called the green machine and they're, they're Subarus are wrapped with, you know, Subaru logos and flowers and things like that. Yeah. We, uh, <laughs> when my wife was buying a new car a handful of years ago, we went and checked out the Subarus cause they're, they're really just safe to drive. Yeah. Um, yeah. They have so much technology that makes them really safe. And, uh, throughout the whole car buying process, we went to a couple of different dealerships that, um, yeah, the, the Subaru dealership or uh, salesperson was just not pushy. He's just, and I was like, you know, you're, every other car salesman where he's like really trying to push this car saying, Hey, what can I do to make you take this thing? He's like, you're either a Subaru person or you aren't, you're going to buy the car, <laughs> like for whatever it costs, or you're not going to buy the car. I don't need to sell it. It's already sold itself. <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah, that's a good way to put it. So I'm actually going to put a poll in our, our Facebook group All right. and ask how many people <laughs> in our group drive Subarus versus don't. This is just purely, had a fascination there's no science <laughs> going into this i like that but, connection uh, though i hadn't even yeah. thought about that but yeah that's it's just really something i've noticed the last like four or five years it just seems that specific really you get into the outdoor crowd but specifically the native plant crowd is just very uh has a lot of subaru loyalty so yeah. i'm interested yeah, to see what our listener major, base is major supporter of the of phs and, and the flower yeah. show yeah yeah, I always noticed they had the the display there too, and I was like, oh yeah, I guess it's it's more than just a, a coincidence. They're kind of bought yeah. into this, so awesome. All right, a great final thoughts. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, mine wasn't too wacky. I hope oh, mine, mine wasn't either. I <laughs> but, don't think so. That's going to wrap us up. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to Andrew Bunting. Uh, for more information, you can visit uh, phsonline.org, and there's the links to join as a member. There's links to volunteer. Um, there's information about the flower show, which is going to be, I think it was March 4th through March 12th at the, uh, the uh, Philadelphia convention center. So if you haven't been to the flower show, I've never been to one indoors. I can't wait to go to one I, indoors yeah, because I, I know it's, it was nice outdoors, but I know it's going to be a, a different experience. So 
And you're right across the street from the Reading Terminal Market. That's true. There's a lot going on there. Yeah. <laughs> so, so thank you, everyone, for listening to Native Plants Healthy Planet presented by Pinelands Nursery. Uh, we want to give a huge thank you to the Egocentric Plastic Men for contributing our theme music. Make sure you stream or buy their songs wherever you consume music. Uh, and if you want to see them live, you can see them in and around the Philadelphia area. I think they play the Grape Room a lot in Maniunk. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery or Native Plants underscore Healthy Planet and YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. Don't forget about the question and comment line. Call us at 215-346-6189. I will repeat that, 215-346-6189. Ask a question or leave a comment. When we play it on a future episode of The Buzz, we will answer it to the best of our ability and uh, – Great work being done in the Native Plants Healthy Planet Facebook group. So many new members and so many informative and kind posts. I can't thank yeah. everyone enough for for all their contributions. Oh, yeah. So you can buy our podcast merch and listen to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. Uh, there's a link right at the top that will take you to our Teespring store, and you can get your – your native plants, healthy planet shirts, like your plant, native right plant shirts, native like Fran's, like Fran's wearing. Um, <laughs> if you're listening to the podcast, you're probably going to be listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, really wherever you consume your podcast. If it's possible, uh, leave a five star review. And if you do a little write up with that review, not only will I give you a shout out on our Buzz episodes, but you're also entered to win a flat of pollinator plants that we're going to choose something for your yeah, area. Fifty different. Hopefully, depending on your area, fifty different native plants to your area. You want to give them fifty different species? Yeah. Or, oh, I thought it was just a, no. I was going to. I was going to. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And don't forget that if you're buying merchandise from our store, a hundred percent of the profits go. We keep none of that money. Hundred percent of the profits go to other great organizations that are doing great work. So, uh, Bowman's Hill will announce on the next buzz. Yes, they know they're getting it, but I don't know if we know it total yet. That yeah. Yeah. The the next one is the cutoff. Yep. So, um. I think that's it. Sorry, yeah. I cut you off. So with that, thank you, everyone. I'm Tom. And I am Fran. Thank you again, everyone. Andrew, thank you so much uh, for joining us today and taking so much time. And you're always welcome if you're yeah. in the area. Stop by and see us. And uh, if you're listening, you're going to be able to catch Andrew. Uh, you're giving a presentation at the Perennial Plant Association meeting next week, right? Oh. So Yes, if next uh, uh, Monday, this upcoming Monday. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, if you're listening and you're going to that, you'll be able to hear him in person. Make sure you see it. So, um we have a buzz episode coming up next, uh, so make sure you uh, tune in for that. And until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.